It's just a bit massively stereotypical. I saw a major class to see Harold Macmillan. BT Press or design. E.T. is a definite thing. It's definitely an audience member. Oh, I feel all that. I'm the fun. Highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. My favourite baffling toy of the 70s was an incredible hulk inside the cage where you squeezed a bulb to inflate him and he got bigger and bigger until the cage burst open. I remember telling when I was very young a child from down the road about it who immediately asked what happens to the bits of the cage that they go on the floor, which, as far as I'm concerned, wasn't really the pertinent question there. But it is the sort of toy you'd expect a child in the 70s to get. When Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge from the Round the Archives podcast appeared on Looks Unfamiliar, though, they wanted to talk about a toy that really shouldn't have been a toy. The Jaws game, which is literally a shark with its mouth propped open, that you get a little hook, it's like a sort of crochet hook or a dentist hook or something, and you reach into the shark's mouth to pull out bits and pieces of the things you swallowed. So things like a skull in some versions, a fish skeleton, there's a gun, which apparently disappeared quite quickly. <laughs> That's not suitable for children. But it was held up by an elastic band. And I was quite frankly terrified of it because you never knew when the shark's mouth was going to snap shut. And if your hand was in the way, it hurt. <laughs> it would actually hurt. It would actually hurt because its teeth were quite sharp. But yeah, and I had no idea why on earth my parents thought it was a suitable game for me. Because <laughs> obviously the film comes out in 75 and the game comes out around the same time, if not a year or two later. Now, I was only three in 1975, so I obviously didn't have it then. And you didn't go and see the and film. I didn't go and see the film. And I, I get the idea that it got to about 1980 and somebody somewhere was selling it cheap. And they thought, oh, yeah, that'll do as a Christmas present. It scared the hell out of me when it snapped shut. <laughs> a bit like Buckaroo. I was, I think I had Buckaroo as well, and I was quite scared of Buckaroo. Because <laughs> you never knew when it was going to flip and everything would fly everywhere. I just don't get it at all. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, Jaws were huge phenomenon. But it's quite an unpleasant film. And it's one that I remember... Kids used to be frightened of seeing it listed in the TV Times. So why would any of them have wanted a game featuring an aquatic creature that could eat you? It was also the thing of, the, as I said, the mouth was held open by an elastic band. The moment the elastic band perished, that was it. You couldn't really replace the elastic band. So once the moment the elastic band went, you couldn't play the game anymore. Or you lost the hook. You know, if you lost the hook, you're putting your hand in there. <laughs> Just up to the wrist. Just up to the fine, wrist, yeah. you know. And it seemed to me at the time to be quite scary. But I look at pictures of it now and think, oh, my God, it's actually quite a rubbish shark. Like the film. So, I mean, you, you, you're saying about um, kids being scared of the TV listing. I also remember when the Museum of the Moving Image, when that existed on the South Bank and they had the Doctor exhibition. So I went into the ladies' toilet and they were playing the Jaws music. I have never gone to the toilet so quickly in the whole of my <laughs> Life. Well, did you know there was a disco version of the Jaws theme? I know there were there were disco versions of every theme in the 70s, but really, honestly, there's a disco version of Jaws. I can't imagine many people at Studio 54 sort of getting on down to that. Really. I, I still have trouble watching Jaws because I still jump out of my skin every time the damn shark jumps up at somebody. Yeah. And I'd hate you the, know it's coming. I know but... it's coming. I hate the bit with the dog. I've read the book. It actually, in the book, it goes into the mind of the person as they are being eaten. Oh, nice. Really bizarre. You don't get, like, a boy or a dog in the actual uh, game, then, no, do you? No. <laughs> 
I read it once when I was doing work experience at an old people's home and I was sitting with somebody and I read quite what a size of you read yours to them? Yeah, no, not to them. I was right. just sitting with them while they worked very well. And I've read it a bit since and it's really not not very nice book no. at all. Not at all. And I know I think Peter Benchley was actually quite sorry written it because a lot of cruelty to sharks happened after the film mm-hmm. and after the book. Mm-hmm. And he was he became a patron of a shark charity or something to give sharks a better name because <laughs> they're not as bad as, as the film portrays. Mm. It was only the second most inappropriate film tie-in toy of the 70s, though, because, again, this is something not many people believe me about. There was a toy of the alien from Alien. Where if you if you flipped a switch on its back, the jaws like snapped open and shut, and had the full skull face and everything. It wasn't a collector's thing for adults that kids were bought. It was marketed by Kenner Toys in the same way they marketed the Star Wars stuff. They obviously thought it was appropriate and suitable for children. Although I don't think H.R. Geiger joined a sort of alien preservation charity to atone for it really though if you'd like to do your bit for raising awareness of lisa and andrew's podcast you can find it around the archives.blogspot.com ben baker actually appeared on two editions of looks unfamiliar because when we're recording he kept coming up with good ideas and it can be quite hard to stop him but one of the things he did come up with was a board game that was inappropriate for children in an entirely different way mysteries of old peking it's cluedo set in chinatown effectively but it had some quite neat little angles to it. There was like a red filter thing to look at some clues. There's a mirror that you could only see certain clues in. And you only got those cards and you had to work out who did it. So it was it was a fun game. It's just a bit massively stereotypical. Yeah, I mean, that was really... You know, there's this idea that in the 80s everything was right on and all that was stamped out. But it still sort of lingered on into the 80s a bit in often quite unpleasant ways. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that the pyramid advert was the most enlightened thing in the world. <laughs> there was that... Dan the annual that really bothered me where he knocked his neighbour out by accident with a doorknob his neighbour fell in some black paint and woke up and said I'm going back to where I belong Wongo Bongo land there was all all this stuff was still around Mm. and you know it's the stuff that like you know idiots are now saying why can't we say that anymore because it was unpleasant and it wasn't funny would that describe this board game you said it was quite fun but do you ever feel you know this isn't right while you're playing at the time I'll be honest and said no I think I got this I got this as an Easter present from my in 1990 so it came out originally in 87 so it must have been cheap somewhere basically what you do is you get uh, rather than like cluedo you get a selection of culprits on a card and they all have guess who style attributes and you have to work out from the clues which one it was uh, would you like to know what the 12 uh, possible suspects were called i don't think i would like to know but go on who me dun wong oh slyly seesaw we won I'm assuming that's the guy from the Chia title sequence. Sing song, Handy, Archu. Archu! What is that Simon Bates? <laughs> he doesn't look that dissimilar, actually. Teehee, Scheming, So Long, and Fooding. And they've all got little pointy hats. Yeah, I, I, I don't need you to, to point that out to me. I kind of worked that out already. But it's a shame because it sounds like one of the very first of those kind of high concept games. You know, the sort of things that led to things like Key to the Kingdom and Atmosphere, you know, where there were sort of interactive elements to them. Is that is that about right? So, and was it kind of a precursor to things like Professor Layton and, well, the Escape the Room things that you get to do in real life now? I suppose, yeah. I mean, it's very low-key, but the 
there's like a spy card and you put that against the card and it basically shows letters it like blocks out all but the important letters and there's a mirrored one i said a red piece of sort of uh, plastic that you can read through and yeah it's annoyingly good fun but don't worry because i've had a look and apparently it is still available <laughs> i don't know if it's been changed any it was renamed to mysteries of old chinatown for a bit. yeah that's not much better and what name was mysteries of old peking later changed to is a question that you definitely won't find in ben's television quiz book remotely interesting which is available from benbaker.ecwid.com. Writer Martin Ruddock didn't pick a board game though, but he was probably too scared to play any after reading about a certain comic strip alien. Doom Lord was a photo strip, a sort of sci-fi horror, and Doom Lord was this alien in a fright mask who basically came to Earth. He steals the identity of a policeman after killing him, and he's basically sort of plotting you know, to, to bring the planet down. And I remember, kind of, I mean, I was quite young, when this when this came out, the, the relaunch of the Eagle was just like the biggest thing. I mean, everyone talked about it at school, despite the fact that we were all little kids and nobody could have possibly even even known about the revival of Dan Dare in 2000 AD because we were all a bit young for that, really. Dan Dare was, and the Eagle was something that we sort of knew about from our parents, sort of having kind of read as, as kids. So there was this big advertising thing. I remember it was advertised on TV quite a lot, wasn't it? For, yes, you, I mean, it was, And yes. the Space Spinner. And of course, when you're small, everything seems huge anyway. So it's like, this is the most exciting thing in the world ever. And I remember getting this first issue of the new Eagle and going, oh, yeah, okay, just reading through. This is good. I mean, I love comics. So I was just flipping. And then Doom Lord came on, and Doom Lord absolutely scared the crap out of me because there's something about those strips, isn't there? They're very posed and they're very sort of fake. But it wasn't exactly helped by the fact that we lived in Slough at the time. We lived in Slough where the Century 21 studios were. At the end of our road, there was a playing field. And that first episode of Doom Lord starts off with Doom Lord just appearing on some common somewhere, murdering this policeman, stealing his identity. And you know, he's a shapeshifter. He takes his identity and there's this fiendish plot which goes on for quite... I mean, I've, I lost track of it in the end. I think it ran for quite a long time. Didn't it change tack a lot? I mean, to cutting one so short, Doom Lord was, as I remember, he was the servitor from the planet Nox, who was there to pass judgments on the worth of other planets. And I think the journalist was called Howard Harvey that rumbled his identity. Weren't there a series of Doom Lords one of them wanted to save the Earth? And his son came at one point. They ran out of steam pretty quickly, but it went on. I looked it up before for seven that's years. Seven years of Doom Lord. I mean, that's a lot of mileage. I mean, to, to get out of any sort of competition. I mean, I suppose they rebooted it multiple times because, as I say, you have the son of Doom Lord. I mean, eventually it just turned into like a regular comic strip. There was Doom Lord and there was, there was Doom Lord 2. I think they gradually sort of softened the character, so Doom Lord became this sort of superhero despite the fact that he was a kind of ghastly, fright-masked alien with, with fearsome powers. And the disintegrator ring, of course, which everyone used to put on rings and Christmas crackers in the playground and pretend to be Doom Lord. I do remember that. But it's interesting. It's, I mean, people are probably wondering why the Eagle was such a big deal, the relaunch of it. But I think it wasn't just that it was photo strips, because, you know, there were... There were comics for girls with photo stories in, so it wasn't a new thing. But it's more... I mean, the two things that really cement this in my mind were 
when I started watching Stranger Things, the first series of it, the first thing I thought was, this reminds me of the photo strips in The Eagle. So it had that sort of 80s sci-fi horror quality, but also things like, not just Doom Lord, but also The Collector, The 13th Floor, Mannix to an extent, all the strips in it, apart from Dan Dare, which didn't really fit in with this, or the, the what was the football one called? I'm not including that in it in this analysis either, but they kind of were of a piece, sort of, with, not, obviously not with video nasties, but that whole culture of, you know, the covers of them, and the being told legends of this happened and that happened, the strips in the Eagle weren't far away from that. I mean, obviously, you know, we weren't seeing those videos at that age, but they were part of that whole thing that was swirling round, as I say, the early 80s sci-fi horror thing, and that's why it was... It wasn't like other boys' comics. It wasn't even like 2000 AD, which is, you know, in the future and witty. No, it was very gritty. It was designed to frighten the life out of you, and it succeeded, I'd say. Yeah, it, it very much... I mean, it's funny, I don't even have to look at that first page of Doom Lord. It is just permanently ingrained in my brain. I mean, he appears in the middle of a common, dressed in what looks like a shower curtain, kills this policeman with his disintegrator ring, and assumes his identity. I mean, and Howard Harvey running off, sort of exit stage, left it in a really sort of stagey, I must escape and warn the world about this shower curtained alien with a fright mask on. That first page, it must have sort of stuck for me just because I became quite afraid of that playing field. I'm surprised I ever left the house. Well, you don't have to leave the house to catch up with what Martin's up to because you can find it at I'llExplainLater.co.uk. Obviously, I remember Doomlord really clearly, but sometimes people's suggestions will really surprise you. When journalist Steve O'Brien appeared on the show, he picked two songs by a band that I used to be obsessed with, but until he mentioned them, I'd actually forgotten that these songs existed that was officially it was the stone roses these were the two songs that they played at their final reading gig so these are technically post squire songs so whether you accept them as stone roses songs when you know that they were written by ian brown and aziz ibrahim the short-lived replacement guitarist you can decide whether they're sort of canon or not but i was there at that final gig which is sort of gone down in infamy as one of the worst gigs of all time and there were apparently people crying in the crowd i don't remember it like that i was i was a massive roses fan but i remember it being quite a sort of buoyant and quite triumphant gig and from the reaction of the people around me but they did play these two songs which was terribly exciting and kind of pointed the way towards you know we didn't know that they were going to split up obviously at the time so this pointed towards wow this could be the sound of their third album yeah and uh, until until maybe about sort of five years ago I hadn't heard them since 96 so yeah it was just nice to see, hear them again well Ian Brown did do one of them which was Ice Cold Cube on his first solo yes, album it, but High Times has sort of been erased from history yeah totally Ice, uh, Ice Cold Cube was redone given a much sort of it was slightly reordered and given a much fuller sound for his first album but apparently lyrically it's about John Squire so I don't think I don't think that's ever going to be sort of sung again but High Time yeah it's not a great it's not a great song and not one of their best so yeah it's uh it, but, but it, it is one of the few roses songs that was never been studio recorded well i do remember select describing it as sounding like biss's first rehearsal tape with bill tarmy on vocals but the reason i remember that was selected a full page minute by minute breakdown of that gig i think that was where the reputation you know the famously disastrous reputation originally came from was probably that article and it was to someone who wasn't there it was quite a funny piece you know it's talking about waterfall going worryingly heavy metal and robbie maddox who was the 
replacement yeah. drummer for Rennie. He kept shouting, woo, and here we go. And it sounded horrible. But there was a bit I really took issue with, and it's so interesting to think of in retrospect, was they made fun of Ian Brown shouting between songs, take those Union Jacks down, I don't want to see them. And they were kind of, ah, look at the square, he's not joining in with our Britpop fun. But he wasn't alone, because around the time of Britpop, there were all these people who, they hadn't obviously been stars in the punk era, but they'd grown up through punk and had started performing not long after, like Ian Brown. The other one was Edwin Collins, who did a couple of songs that he did, Keep On Burning, which is about burning the Union Jack. And Adidas World, where it says, I tried it once or twice, but unless I got it wrong, you can't defeat the enemy by singing his song, which I think is quite a pointed swipe at the Britpop bands. But they were all saying, hang on, we're not on board with this, you know, jingoistic stuff. And everyone was saying, oh, you you, you old moaners, you know, let us have off. And then it's interesting to see what happened in the wake of that that's all I'll yeah, say yeah because they you know, obviously the Roses and Abraham Collins they were about 10 years older than the, most of the, the Britpoppers but of course the people writing for Select were the same ages as Ian Brown they were probably in all honesty on board with the oldies but their readership were 18 to 25 and um you know they were totally giving them what they wanted to to read I think which slight sort of ge- generational schism between the Manchester and shoegazing lot and and the new Britpoppers. Well, that's why I never thought the Stone Roses should have allowed themselves to get anywhere near the whole Britpop thing, because it was always going to end embarrassingly. They were idolised by, I can't really say the previous generation up, because I was, you know, very much into both of those movements, the Manchester and the Britpop thing, but there were yesterday's news, and they'd been away for a very long time. And they were always going to be found wanting getting involved with that whole scene, really. And certainly, I think what really underlines that to me is just a personal thing is I, like I say, I was so excited to hear what they'd do next. When I heard Second Coming, my initial reaction was, oh, right. And steadily after that, I remember they did the tour not long after that, where I genuinely, it was the the classic thing of, I was the one who got the door shut in his face at the box office. The last ticket was sold to the person before me. I remember thinking, do you know what? I'm actually not that bothered. You know, I've been to see them several times when they were at their height, and there was actually Spike Island as well. And I thought, I don't actually care anymore. I mean, that's pretty sad, but it also shows that things have moved on. Their musical reference points at that point in time were so unfashionable in terms of rip pop if you look at the, the singles from that final album so you've got love spreads which is obviously kind of led there's a there's a heavy led zepp influence that the whole second coming you got begging you which kind of feels more like a kind of chemical brothers you know song a few years before they actually came along 10 story love song okay that that could have come off the first album but essentially kind of like their soundscape at the time was totally on a different planet to, to everything else around. Yeah, so you know these two songs they get they get a, the, the whole gig gets a bad rap, but I was there and it was a pretty brilliant Sunday night. And you can get Who Graphica, an infographic guide to space and time by Steve from all good bookshops. And I believe there's a sequel covering Buffy in the works, though I don't think he'll be doing one for Aziz Ibrahim era Stone Roses. At least I'd actually heard of and probably even heard Ice Cold Cube and High Time, though. When comedy historian Jem Roberts appeared on the show, he picked something directly related to one of my obsessions that I had no idea about at all. Okay, I'm just going to cut to the chase here. I was a huge, obsessive fan of the young ones. I used to sneakily watch it on my black and white portable. I had all the books were in, including the comic relief ones they appeared in. I had all the records. I had the computer game. I had Alexis Sales singles, Neil's Book of the Dead, all kinds of things. This, though, 
somehow passed me by completely. I knew nothing about it until I actually saw you talking about it on a comedy forum one day. I seem to be the only person that knew anything about it. No, I just remember being a kid and with my brothers watching telly and suddenly there's Nigel Planer and Adrian Edmondson because, you know, even in single figures, we were comedy geeks enough to know who they were. And the funny thing is that so many years after the young ones, it was only about they were still probably only in their early 30s or something at the time but it was a yuppie neil and no no it, well sorry well they're both yuppies there's different flavors of yuppies there's a sort of a city boy yuppie viv and a hippie yuppie neil at the supermarket clashing trolleys and ah, flogging stuff I've, I've already forgotten what it, they were flogging what were they flogging tim friends providence it was insurance yeah, yeah in fact, i've forgotten even if you mentioned it just now but I don't think we really kind of cared very much about selling out, even at the time. We were just excited that they'd survived the bus crash as they'd survived, you know, being trampled by medieval knights and having enormous eclairs falling on them, and that we could we could all pretend to ourselves that the young ones were still out there somewhere. Well, they survived it because they're in the comic relief stage show. Everyone forgets that, and they reference the bus crash. You know, certainly shit advert. I mean, it's not good. It's not funny. <laughs> I'm sure Rick Mail took the piss savagely at the time but it was one of those things that you did have to fight because you really had to fight your corner if you remember it and, and it was one of those things where people could almost convince you that it had never happened at all adverts are one of the ultimate things for that but it, it was so compartmentalized and adverts could just play two three times and if the people couldn't afford to run it again it would never be seen again and sometimes i mean i've just been i've just finished doing this fry and Laurie book you know and there's so many adverts obviously that they did but it's difficult to track down you know advertising is a strange world to research you know to get in there and, and find any footage yeah well i've got one bizarrely again with the young ones theme that nobody else seems to remember and there's certainly no trace of it online which was around the time of you know uh i think it was just before the living doll single it was you know young's frozen foods i know of them they did an advert where sort of it was obviously somebody who had never seen the young ones had been told do something about a bit like the young ones where you know but like a teddy boy and the glam rocker or what you know like four completely wrong archetypes came in and i was going the young swans we love the young swans give us young swans get them on our plate basically all verging on copyright infringement but there's no sign of it anywhere and don't forget to back gem's book about british folklore tales of britain at talesofbritain.com there may well not be any evidence of the young's ones out there but when writer mark Griffiths appeared on the show he chose something that i'm really really glad there's no evidence of out there well i mean you're all saying yes we all remember kilroy because obviously that was robert kilroy silk presenting his bbc daytime talk show but it isn't just kilroy this is and i quote the bloke who pulled his pants down on Kilroy. Mark, do you really want to tell us about this? Um, well, I mean, you ask for things that uh, people may not remember, and I seem to be the only person in the world <laughs> who experiences this. Can I just check before we go any further? Are you sure it wasn't just Kilroy himself? <laughs> No, no, it was definitely an, an audience member. Oh, if you're there, pardon the pun. Um, yeah, so I'm watching Kilroy in the morning. Can't even remember what subject was under discussion that day. And then the guy in the audience, this sort of slightly helping pale ginger guy, jumps to his feet and uh, loudly announces that everybody in this country is so repressed, pulls down his 
trousers and underpants and gyrates his hip with some abandon, I have to say. That's not going to make anyone any less repressed, is it, really? No, I mean, if ever there was an argument for repression, uh, I think it's kind of behaviour, to be honest. So, yeah, there was a sort of... Um, terrified couple of seconds of silence before people eventually realised what was happening. And I remember particularly one woman in the audience shouting out, my mother watches this! And Kilroy uh, asked for security to come on and said, uh, actually, can he be removed? Can he be removed, please? And uh, the guy was uh, strong-armed out, trousers round his ankles. I don't know about you, Tim, but that's why um, if I did pay my licence fee, that would be why I paid it. Well, obviously nobody remembers that because, as people listening will know, I've done a couple of bad TV clip shows and I've been shown clips of Kilroy and things and they've never wheeled that out so obviously everyone's forgotten that but I have a Kilroy memory that nobody remembers which is this was quite early on when it first started maybe about 1987 88 where there was an edition about when I say celebrity lookalikes not people who you know work for agencies and go out and be Del Boy at your dad's 60th party or whatever it was people who actually in their day to day life emulate the look of famous people past and present and it was quite interesting because people were quite hostile to them and there was one guy who made the point very very well who was a kind of Vegas Elvis character yeah who said quite impassionedly said well you're all making fun of me but I work for a charity in my spare time and I go around and visit dying children in the hospital and I be Elvis for them and it makes them laugh but the problem was, he said it in an over-the-top Elvis drawl. It sort of really undermined what he was doing. But the other great bit from it, which is why I would love to see this again, was one of the... Because they always had experts on Kilroy who absolutely looked like somebody made them go on at gunpoint and they'd not been given any preparation for what they're going to talk about one of them bizarrely was Stephen Wells from the NME but he was obviously being swells he was very hostile to the whole idea but there was a guy who it really was uncanny as resemblance I think he'd have work done on his nose to be honest but he looked so much like you know you get a lot of people who try and look like John Lennon the hippie era John Lennon yeah. this guy was Cavan era John Lennon to a T absolutely and he he was being quite sarcastic throughout it and Stephen Wells rounded on him sort of turned around and said come on mate what would John Lennon think of you to which he immediately replied in a terrible John Lennon voice what would Duncan Gortier think of you (laughs) and keep an eye out for a new run of performances of We Apologise for the Inconvenience Mark's play about Douglas Adams which should be taking place soon keep an eye on his Twitter Mark Griffiths 42 for more details and now as a bit of a bonus Here's me talking to Mark Thompson, who you might have heard in the first Best of Looks Unfamiliar, about a TV show that's only a couple of years old, but everyone upon everyone has forgotten about already. What about something like, say, The Prisoner? And they attempted to remake that a few years ago. I think I managed to get through about two episodes of the remake before I just gave up, because it just wasn't working for me. Well, that's the key thing, because most people have actually forgotten it happened. It's only 2009 it was on. Mm. It wasn't that long ago at all, but... It was just a complete disaster because there had been previous attempts in other media at reviving the prisoner. I mean, there were some, there's some spin-off novels where very odd things happen, like Number Six leaves the village and then he goes on holiday to Port Merion in one of them, <laughs> which is a, you know, a quite, a, quite an interesting twist on it. And there was a DC comic series which actually got the thumbs up on Patrick McGowan, where it was set sort of a bit in the future with an elderly number six refusing to leave the village even though he was the only person still there. Mm. So obviously people in the past had thought, well, 
because it's so odd, because it's so offbeat, we need to do something different if we're bringing it back. But AMC, who make a lot of good programmes, in I think there's a co-production with ITV, but they basically just turn it into a typical weird mainstream drama. I mean, too much was explained, but too many rationalisations. Uh, it's interesting to compare to, around the same time, ITV wanted to bring back another sort of very odd sci-fi series called Sapphire and Steel. Mm. And they were at quite an advanced stage, and the writer, PJ Hammond, pulled out of it and withdrew the rights because they said there had to be an origin episode explaining who Sapphire and Steel were. And as he, I interviewed him a couple of years ago, and as he said to me, well, you can't explain who they are because they just are. Yeah. And the, the revival of the prisoner was like that. They were they tried to explain why people didn't know they were in the village, you know, why the village existed. <laughs> that wasn't the point of the. The whole point is you don't know. Yes, exactly. He doesn't know, you know. Mm. And he's not on the quest to find out, he's just on the quest to get out. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. Don't forget that you can download the full shows and many more besides at timworthington.org. And while you're there, if you want to support the show, why not buy one of my books? There's more details on the website, but there's also an advert coming up in a minute. Anyway, that's it for this time. See you soon. You couldn't easily become a Time Lord, couldn't easily become a superhero or anything like that, but a detective? Seemed a bit easier, really. Top of the Box by Tim Worthington. The complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes. More details at timworthington.org. The Camberwick Green Procrastination Society. Articles, columns and more, some previously unpublished. More details at timworthington.org.